Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. If you're headed down to Enchant at Nationals Park, be sure to stop before or after at Walters. Just across the street, Walters is open all year round, including all of bowl season and during the NFL playoffs. Reservations can be booked at waltersdc.com slash reservation. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I have to report that effective at 12.01 a.m. this morning, we instituted a lockout of Major League players. We took this action with the support of all 30 clubs after we failed to reach a new agreement with the Players Association, despite our very best efforts. We came to Texas to make a deal. Um, We committed to the process, we made proposals, and it just did not happen. And welcome to Nats Chat for Wednesday, December 8th, 2021, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Happy holidays. It's nice to be with everybody for another off-season installment of the podcast. We are coming at you with episodes periodically during the off-season. Make sure you are a subscriber to the Nats Chat podcast so that you never miss an episode this off-season. An off-season that could last for a while. We shall see a lockout as anticipated, did begin on December 2nd, but not before a frenzy of off-season activity that included, yes, Max Scherzer signing with the New York Mets. Uh, trust me, we will be getting to that. We're also going to talk about the activity, or lack thereof, by the Nationals, although they did do some things, including reach a deal with Cesar Hernandez. But Mark, here we are. It is December. It is cold. It's not even technically winter yet. The Nats did get Cesar Hernandez. MLB and the MLB Players Association can't stand each other. It is the most wonderful time of the year. Happy holidays, my friend. I'm glad to see you're in good spirits despite your Terrapins uh, disastrous week on the basketball court, including the departure (laughs) of your head coach and then the loss to the lowly Northwestern Wildcats. You know, normally I would be thrilled to win a game at Maryland, but I don't know that's going to help their cause that much this year. That doesn't mean that much right now, right? Uh, not right now. It doesn't. No, that was as strange of a game as we will ever see a noon start time. As you know, noon on a college campus is like death, man. Okay. That's as dead of a time as any place ever is noon, a Sunday on a college campus. But yeah, off the shocking resignation of Mark Turgeon. Our basketball team has a lot of issues right now, no doubt, but that's for another conversation. But yes, good to see you. Good to be doing an episode here of the Nats Chat podcast. And 
Uh, oh, yeah, we have our first labor stoppage in MLB uh, since the mid-90s, since the famous 1994-95 strike. I guess the good news is most people don't anticipate this thing lasting that long, lasting into the regular season. But, of course, we don't know until we know. No one's surprised, obviously, that we got to this point. Everyone was anticipating it. But are you optimistic like most others, or do you think that this may, in fact, lead into the regular season? Well, so, yeah, I mean, let's start with the fact that Everybody saw this coming. We had talked about it before, that we felt like this had been brewing for a long time, that the two sides have really been at their lowest point since the mid-90s. You know, there had been, I think it was four labor agreements, CBAs, that had been worked out since then, and they never really seriously threatened a work stoppage on any of them. They got them done with no problems, but you knew that the relationships had soured since then. You certainly saw last year as they were arguing over how much money to pay players during the short season, that this was sort of the laying the groundwork for a bigger fight that was going to happen. And so here we are. So on the one hand, not surprised at all. The timing of it, because it starts on December 1st, you know, there's no urgency to get something done because we're nowhere close yet to it threatening games. And so I think you want to believe that common sense prevails here and that both sides understand how damaging it would be if it dragged on to the point that now spring training is delayed or, God forbid, the regular season. So I want to believe that, and I think everybody does believe that, and yet it still is going to require these two sides agreeing to something at some point, and that means a compromise. And right now, everything we've heard from either side on this, and really not just in the last week, but over the last couple of years, it's not going to be easy. It's not like they're just going to sit down on, let's say, February 1st and hash something out in 48 hours. There's a lot of work to do. And I hope that they aren't just taking the winner off and waiting till the last minute to do this. Like they need to use this time they have now to actually make some progress so that when they do reach a real deadline as we approach spring training, they can actually get something done. Because that's my fear is that they're too far apart to just think they can throw it together at the last minute. Yeah. And as we've noted, it's dysfunctional between the two sides. Like it's pretty ugly the way things have been. Like you said, just trying to get together on a 2020 season, a shortened season, was a real drama and a real problem back when that was going on. You know, there are, of course, so many differences between, you know, where we're at now and where we were in 94 when that famous strike happened. You obviously have something like social media now, which you didn't have before. I think you have a much smarter and well-educated fan base now as compared to before because people have access to information like never before. But I also think you have the sport of baseball in a different place. You know, I think baseball was more prominent nationally in the mid-90s than it is now. Baseball is still very good and successful locally, but nationally it's lost a lot of traction. That's a real issue for the sport. And I think the other thing too is you know, in the 1990s, you had a booming economy. Certainly not everyone was doing well, but a lot of people were. I don't think there's an appetite at all from the general public, from most baseball fans, to hear about billionaires bickering with millionaires, especially with what's happened with our economy since the COVID-19 pandemic, especially with other things going on in the world. I just don't sense a real appetite to get into the issues here and to see who's right and who's wrong and how should they compromise and things like that. I think there's a fraction of the baseball fan base that is into that stuff. I do personally find that stuff interesting, but I don't think people are into this, man. Like if this thing lasts for a while, I think people tune it out and, you know, they put on a football game or a basketball game or a hockey game or they go outside with their kids or something like that. Baseball's got to be careful here because it's out of sight, out of mind in today's day and age. And if this thing goes on for a long time and if games are missed, 
That's a problem. You know, you don't have a Cal Ripken Iron Man streak or a Maguire Sosa home run chase to bring fans back like you did in the 90s. We're in a different time right now for baseball. I agree. And I, I think it's important to note what's going on in the world right now beyond baseball, where sports are really a salvo for a lot of people, an escape from everything else going on in the world, especially in the last year and a half amid a pandemic. And it's not just that baseball's in a different place now than it was in the 90s, but the world's in a very different place than it was in the mid-90s. I was thinking about this, the strike in 94. It started on August 12th, 1994. That was my 18th birthday. Happy birthday to me. That's still one of my least favorites ever. And at the time, I didn't know. I was a teenager. I didn't really know what this would mean. But the idea that they could cancel the World Series and then even threaten the next season. Remember, the 95 season started late. They were using replacement players in spring training. I went to a Cactus League replacement game and they were very close to complete implosion at that point. And in the end, they got it done thanks in part to now Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who helped stop an injunction and got them you know, back at the negotiating table. But I mean, it's a very different world right now than then. And I agree. I don't think fans out there right now, they don't care which side wins in this. It's not like, oh, well, if the owners win, fans can say, okay, now I'm back in or oh, the players got more arbitration or earlier free agency. That's not going to determine whether fans are ready to embrace this or not. They just want there to be games. And I think that's the thing that both sides have to understand here. Yeah, there are legitimate reasons they're fighting, but you got to remember, ultimately, who are you fighting for? Who is your clientele? Who makes the sport run? Yeah. And I think that, and look, we all kind of live in our own little bubbles, right? But I remember in the mid-90s during that strike, a lot of media coverage of the strike and of the issues. I was a subscriber to the Sporting News, and I remember the Sporting News, a ton of coverage on the strike, and Sports Illustrated, a ton of coverage on the strike. And maybe I'm just missing it. I'm not seeing a lot on this labor stoppage. I'm not seeing a lot of debate about the issues. I think you have to go to specific outlets for content on this stuff. But I just, I don't think there's an appetite for it. Like, I just don't think people are into it. I, I think people are into other things. So we'll see. You know, it's funny you bring up the start of the 94 strike. The thing that I always remember is Kenny Rogers throwing a perfect game. I don't know if it was on the day before the strike started. It was like right before the strike yeah. started, whenever that was. So I always just kind of associate that with that. Two out, ninth inning, perfect game. Kenny Rogers for the Rangers against Gary DeSarcina of the Angels. On the pitch, swung on, line to center. Greer is there. He's calling. He's got it. Hello, perfect game. Kenny Rogers mobbed on the mound. Here's my concern, though, my biggest concern with this. So baseball, I think, does have some real things that it needs to grapple with. I hope that ultimately the CBA that we get addresses and if not fixes the issues, then alleviates the issues. What I don't want is some Band-Aid CBA. I would rather games be canceled, but a legitimate CBA be arrived at that addresses some of the real issues with baseball. Then we don't miss any games, but the CBA ends up not really taking care of the things that are hurting the sport right now. Like to me, there's no bigger thing than the time of game slash pace of play issue. Like the stuff about team control and things like that, that's a big thing, but that doesn't really impact the average fan. Something like the average time of game, the pace of play, that impacts the average fan. I think this is a real opportunity to finally address this issue. You know, you have this obvious give and take that goes on in a labor negotiation. So to me, if you're the owners, you say, all right, look, universal DH creates more jobs, more money for you guys. 
We lessen team control. You maybe go down from six years to, I don't know, five, maybe four. I mean, whatever. I'm not a labor negotiator, but you get the idea. But then what you're going to give back to us for us conceding on those two fronts is, you know, you're going to acquiesce on, say, a pitch clock. You're going to acquiesce on some other measures. You know, maybe umpires finally start enforcing the one foot in a batter's box rule. But in other words, I think this is an opportunity for baseball to try to get at the crux of the things that are hurting the sport right now. And I don't know if that's going to happen or not, because I kind of feel like what you ultimately get is a deal that neither side is thrilled with and that just kind of prolongs the problems because baseball's had some of these problems for a long time. But that to me is kind of what I've been thinking about the most of, okay, is baseball going to be able to address the things that are hurting the sport right now? Yeah, I think that's a huge problem because if you think about what have we already seen and heard about what they're fighting over and debating over, it's money. Right. It's all about money. We're not hearing about on-field changes at all, which we thought were going to be a big part of this. Now, maybe they get back around to that at some point. But to be honest, Rob Manfred answered a question about this at his uh, press conference the day after the lockout began. And he said, to be honest, the focus right now has been all on the financial stuff. On-field changes were the topic of discussion at the table. Um, We did make a proposal early on about a joint process um, with respect to on-field changes. Um, We did not make any specific rule change proposals. We are in the process of still evaluating changes. Um, And and, and frankly, based on the discussions at the table, we saw it as another contentious issue and tried to put it to one side in an effort to get to an agreement on the theory that we could deal with it midterm of the next agreement. Like once it's already ratified and they're going, then they do something. So that could mean a year from now or who knows. That to me is very discouraging because I agree. I think there should be way more focus on that because these are things that both in theory, players and owners should be able to agree on what's good for the game. And it's not a selfish thing. It's not like a pitch clock is better for owners or better for players or worse. In theory, these are things that are good for everybody if they do it right. And I don't see them focusing on any of that stuff. This is about players getting more money at a younger age. It's about when they can become free agents. It's about the really the big thing in the player's mind that they're so upset at. They want more teams to spend more money on players. They are really concerned, have been for a while, that there are too many franchises that are tanking and purposely not spending money because the system has rewarded them for doing that. And you know, I think we know that that is the case. So what we're talking about here are some pretty dramatic changes in an overhaul to a financial system that's been in place for a while. And that's not something that comes easily. And that is going to supersede any kind of discussion of on-field changes. And so that concerns me because I don't think anything gets done until they settle that part of it. And if both sides, if they're just concerned with trying to, to win and beat the other side, they're never getting anywhere. The only way this works out is if in the end, both sides are dissatisfied with the conclusion. Maybe they're satisfied with a little bit here or there, but ultimately the only way a deal gets done is if neither side walks out of it and says, yeah, we like what we just got. Yeah. I mean, the MLBPA for years has been viewed as the strongest of all of the players associations in major North American sports. This is not, say, the NFL Players Association, which has been weak and has gotten romped in labor negotiations with NFL owners for years. The MLBPA is strong. Marvin Miller really started that decades ago. It has continued over the years. Now, we'll we'll see what uh, Tony Clark ends up being here, but 
you know, MOBPA, I mean, these guys, they've been getting guaranteed money for a long time. They sort of look at things as, you know, we deserve X, Y, and Z. And so these labor negotiations, when they have resulted in work stoppages, can get nasty, no doubt. And, you know, there is this hope that this one won't take that long. But as we're outlining this, it certainly wouldn't be that shocking if this ended up taking a while. So we'll see. But ultimately, I really do want to see them address the real core issues. And I don't know if that's going to happen, but I did want to say that. Hey, Nats fans, are you looking to buy or sell a home or an investment property? If so, contact Jamie Coppersmith and the Coppersmith Group at McInerney Associates. A huge Nats fan right from the get-go in 2005, Jamie has repeatedly been recognized by Washingtonian Magazine as a top-producing real estate agent across the DMV. Referred to by a client as a Jedi Master of Real Estate, he will bring his expertise to bear on your behalf, helping you understand and navigate this challenging real estate market. Jamie is a five-tool agent who's as patient as Juan Soto at the plate. He has his own version of Moneyball, a strategic and statistical market-based analysis that balanced with a deep respect for your specific real estate needs, goals, and timeline. So whether buying or selling, call Jamie Coppersmith today at 202-525-7471 or visit his website at thecoppersmithgroup.com. That's Coppersmith with a K. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Yeah, I think there were so factors that uh, went into my decision here. First, we, you know, when I took the Zoom call with uh, Steve and, and, and Billy and, you know, got to know those two. And, you know, Steve said, it's whatever it takes to win here. He looks at this uh, as he wants to win a championship and he's going to do whatever it takes to win. If there is a positive of all this, and, you know, none of this is like good, but the deadline for the expiration of the CBA almost ended up working as like an artificial trade deadline or transaction deadline. And so we had this frenzy of activity in November, the likes of which we usually don't have in it in an MLB offseason. The MLB offseason every year is so slow to develop. It's the antithesis of what we see in other major pro sports leagues where like as soon as free agency starts in the NFL, NBA, NHL, all these signings happen. In baseball, it's always been the opposite for whatever reason. You didn't get an NFL, NBA, NHL-like free agent frenzy this year. But I tell you what, it wasn't that far from that. We had a lot of transactions happening. It was exciting to see. Like, I got to say, in the days leading up to December 2nd, it was kind of cool to see all of these things happen. Before we get to old Maxi going to the Mets, do you think MLB could ever do something like put in 
an off-season trade deadline or an off-season transaction deadline to try to spice up and speed up the off-season? Or do you think that's the kind of thing we'll never see? I think the league, and probably there are people there right now that looked at what just happened last week and said, hey, we need to find a way to, to duplicate this because, yeah, it drew a lot of attention to our sport at a time of year when very rarely is there much baseball talk going on. Last week in November? No, not at all. So I think from the league standpoint, they would love to do that. The problem is going to be, I cannot imagine the players liking it because anytime you create a little deadline or say, well, we're going to have a, a window of opportunity and everybody's got to sign in 72 hours, the players are going to say that's restricting our market. Ultimately, guys are not going to get what they could fully get because they panic and they say, well, I have to sign before 5 p.m. tomorrow, whatever it might be. The reason that it drags on as long as it does right now is because players and their agents understand that the longer you wait, the more market you can drive up. And maybe as we start getting closer to spring training, teams start getting desperate and saying, well, hang on a second, this free agent's still out there. We could really use them. Let's uh, try to swoop in and outbid that other team that's going after them. Or, boy, I don't want to report for spring training on February 15th, and we don't have a third baseman yet. We better get something done. You're not feeling that pressure in December. So I think from the player's standpoint, it's going to be a tough sell to get them to agree to any kind of uh, deadline. As much fun as it was, as much attention and maybe as good as it is for the sport, I think the players would ultimately say that it's bad for their bottom line. Do you think MOB could do at least a trade deadline in the offseason? Maybe you don't do anything with free agency, but you have a second trade deadline. So every year there's a deadline in season, July 31st, and then there's a deadline in the offseason. Maybe you make it the week of the winter meeting, something like that. Yeah, I think that's possible. That could maybe be somewhere in between, and there's not a whole lot the players can say about that. And in some ways, that might be beneficial. The players could be sold on that idea because the last thing anybody wants is to be traded on February 12th. And all of a sudden, oh, I got to go to Arizona instead of Florida for spring training. You know, I want to know where my family's going to be. So yeah, I could see that. And would there be that much activity? Maybe, maybe it would help a little bit. I mean, it's funny how the winter meetings, and we haven't had one now in two years, it's kind of a strange concept to even think about. For whatever reason, the winter meetings did bring everyone together and usually create a rush of activity, not because they had any reason to have to do it to make deals in early December, but just you had everybody gathered in one place. And so it sort of forces the issue a little bit. So yeah, if you added a trade deadline to that, I could see some more activity that might do something. But I'd be really surprised if the players agreed to any kind of free agency restriction as far as a a time period of when it could happen. Well, in terms of the late November free agency frenzy, nothing moved the needle locally, certainly than the Max Scherzer signing. Max Scherzer ends up going to, yes, the New York Mets. The Metropolitans got themselves some Max Scherzer, and the contract is a whopper. Three years, $130 million deal. The deal reportedly includes an opt-out for Max after two years and a no-trade clause. This is a record-setting deal, average annual value of $43.33 million. That blows away the previous record for AAV in a major league contract. Previous record was $36 million per year. That's for the Garrett Cole contract with the New York Yankees. Now, different contract. Cole's deal with the Yankees, nine years, $324 million. Max, again, with the Mets, three years, $130 million. But, you know, it is kind of funny. Here you have Max Scherzer, a major player in the MLBPA. And one of the big concerns with the MLBPA is older players aren't getting paid. Max Scherzer's going into his age 37 season. He just got a record AAV of $43.33 million. Now, of course, Max is an outlier. This isn't normal. He's an all-time great, but so many things to talk about with this. I guess the thing that struck me more than anything was 
So much for Max Scherzer going to the team that offered him the best chance to win. You know, that's what we heard for the longest time. Oh, Max just wants to win. Golly gee, he just wants to sign with the team that gives him the best chance to win. And, you know, I'm sure he can dress up the Mets however he wants. But here you have the Dodgers. They've made nine consecutive playoff appearances and he ends up going to the Mets. Why? Well, the Dodgers, according to Jorge Castillo with the Los Angeles Times, would not offer Max a third guaranteed year. The Mets did. And so Max goes to the Mets. He went to the team that offered the most money. I'm not mad at Max for doing that, but let's call it what it was. This was a money play. He went to the team that offered him the most money. And boy, did he end up getting a lot of money. He did. And my initial reaction at the time was genuine surprise. Even though the Mets were out there for a while, you knew they were going to come in with a big offer. I really thought that Max and Scott Boris were kind of using the Mets to drive the price up and get the Dodgers, the Giants, somebody else to up their offer. And maybe that was their strategy. And ultimately, once they realized, no, nobody else is doing it, now we got to decide, are you going to take a lesser deal to go with a club that maybe has a better chance of winning? Or are you going to take the better contract and go to the Mets who have a chance at winning and they say they're trying to win, but until they do it, as always with the Mets, you know, there's always going to be that skepticism about whether it's actually going to happen. So I was surprised. And then as I started to think about it and process all of it, I thought, okay, this makes all the sense in the world if you're Max Scherzer. Are you really going to turn down that extra third guaranteed year at this stage of his career? He's 37. Is he going to try to become a free agent again at 39 and think that he's going to get that kind of offer at that point? Probably not. So if nobody else is offering you that, how are you going to turn that down at that dollar amount as well, which is far and away record setting amount? And on top of all that, as you noted, Max is a huge Players Association guy. He's one of their members of the executive council. He is very much involved in all these negotiations. He is going to do things that are not just in his best interests, but what he thinks ultimately is best for the rest of the players in setting an example for them. If you all of a sudden on the eve of a lockout in which you are arguing that teams aren't offering enough and players aren't getting enough to take a lesser deal, what message is that sending to your constituency? So deep down, if you asked Max, hey, where did you want to be in 2022 and 23? I'm guessing he probably would have said a different team, not necessarily the Dodgers, but someone else that you felt like really was guaranteed to contend, probably more so than the Mets. But I think if you also asked him, what's the big picture here? He would point to those other factors and say, I did what was best, not just for me, but for the message I'm trying to convey. Now, I also think it's an important little detail of this is he got an opt-out after year two. And you say like, on a three-year deal, what do you need an opt-out for? Well, to me, that's the fail-safe. If the Mets are a disaster, if things don't go that well, and two years into it, he's like, I don't want to be here any longer. I'm getting out. I'm going to go sign with the Dodgers or somebody else that's in a position to now win because this might be it for me. Then he does that. So I think that was the little fail-safe that he added to that. And the evidence of, despite what he might be saying, he has to have at least a shred of doubt about the Mets' chances of actually winning a World Series while he's there. Yeah, he should have a lot of doubt, uh, given the Mets are the perennial you know, offseason darling that, for whatever reason, ends up flopping during the regular season. You know, the Mets have a recent history of this, of getting Hall of Fame-bound starting pitchers, or at least really good starting pitchers, past their peaks. Johan Santana, Pedro Martinez, Tom Glavin. 
And it's not like all those guys were all bad for the Mets. Uh, Johan had some good years for the Mets, but not a single one of those guys was as good with the Mets as he was with previous teams or a previous team. And so, you know, I think with Max Scherzer, you're getting the same thing. Now, Max is still a really good pitcher, but I think we all would agree he's not peak Max Scherzer. You know, the body has started to fail him in recent years. I think another interesting thing here is what the Mets have in their new owner, Steve Cohen, this hedge fund manager, bought the Mets November 2020. You know, there is Rich at the level of your quote-unquote normal MLB owner, and then there's Steve Cohen, who Performs.com has a real-time net worth in the neighborhood of $16 billion. To put that into perspective, the learners Performs.com are estimated to have a real-time net worth of around $5 billion. Steve Cohen is worth more than triple what the learners are worth, and the learners for years have been ranked as the richest ownership group in MLB. Steve Cohen doesn't care. He's spending money like, you know, it's going out of style. So, you know, on the one hand, you have to laugh, right? The Mets just gave $43 plus million per year to a pitcher in his late 30s. On the other hand, this is monopoly money for Steve Cohen. The Mets on Thanksgiving weekend, right? Signing Starling Marte, signing Eduardo Escobar, signing Mark Hanna. This is a new day for the Mets. It's going to be interesting to see in the National League East. Look, money doesn't solve all your problems as we've seen in sports many times, but Are we seeing a paradigm shift here with the Mets where they are becoming kind of like a New Day Yankees, where now they have an owner who's going to spend whatever it takes to win, and we start seeing the Mets do, you know, shall we say, George Steinbrenner-like things and give out, you know, Steinbrenner-like contracts? Well, I think that would be the hope of a lot of people in New York and Mets fans that that's how it's going to go. But I'll offer up a different comparison. So you've got this uber-wealthy owner who takes over wants to make a big splash, is very brash about it, goes out and signs a bunch of big name free agents, especially those who are past their prime and grew up as a fan of that team and maybe is starting to say things that he shouldn't say and maybe out there a little too much and a little too brash for everyone else. Does that remind you of a certain football team and its owner? It does. And I actually made that comparison on my podcast. I said, Steve Cohen, this is Dan Snyder on steroids. Steve Cohen with his $16 billion net worth, he does not care. Steve Cohen, right, was on Twitter as of a few months ago, putting all kinds of things out there. He was a couple weeks ago, he was. Yeah, as this was all playing out. And by the way, as we're taping this, they still don't have a manager. This is one of those classic, it may all work out wonderfully, and maybe they do become the new Yankees. Or it could also end in a spectacular disaster, as only it can happen with the Mets, it seems. A lot of people want to believe this is different because it's a new owner and this isn't going to be the same old Mets that were run by Fred Wilpon. But they've had three GMs in the last year. They're still trying to hire a manager. They have a brand new owner who is making a lot of waves in both good and bad ways. This is a precarious situation. Look, I like Max Scherzer. I want the best for him. But Would it shock me if this blows up in his face and their faces? No, it wouldn't. Not at all. Absolutely not. To put a Nat spin on it, and I don't know that there were many Nationals fans who were against trading away Max Scherzer, but this to me was the ultimate validation of that decision. He was not going to re-sign here. You know, I know early last season, because we talked about, I remember I brought up the Nationals potentially trading Max very early in the lifespan of the Nats Chat podcast. And people are like, uh, what are you talking about? They're not going to trade Max. He has to approve a trade. It took him 30 seconds to approve being traded away by the Nationals. He doesn't want to be on a team that's rebuilding. Maybe he doesn't want to go to the team that has the best chance to win. You know, money does matter. But the Nats 100% made the right call 
with that sell-off and with trading away Max Scherzer, we can debate the Trey Turner thing, but I mean, could you imagine if the Nats had held on to Max and then he goes and signs with the Mets like this and you got nothing back for him? So to anyone who had doubt, and like I said, I don't know that there was much doubt left, but Mike Rizzo totally made the right call in making that trade, at least trading away Max Scherzer. Yeah, I think the only counter argument to that would have been a complete 180 from what the Nats did, which is to say, if they decided we're not going to tear it all down, maybe we're not going to win this year, but we think we can reload and go for it again next year, then maybe you can convince him to resign with you and maybe they offer him that kind of contract. Now, I'm not saying that would have been a smart move. I think we, as we've acknowledged all along, this team was not in a position to try to do that because of its farm system. They just did not have the depth and the young talent coming up to be able to be a consistent contender for several years to come, especially with Strasburg and the uncertainty with his injury, with Corbin and his bad season, everything else as we've outlined over and over again. So I think that would be the only flip side. If the Nats were trying to remain as contenders, I think there was a chance that Max would have said, okay, I'll re-up with you guys. I'll stick around. Once it became clear that wasn't going to happen, of course, he embraced a trade. He wanted to go somewhere where he had a chance to win right away. And now as he's looking for a new deal, he's going to go somewhere where he thinks at least he has a chance at winning. And that wasn't going to be the case here. If you want to have the pie in the sky dreams of maybe there's still a chance someday, say he opts out after two years, say the Nats by 2024 look like they might be ready to win again, you know, maybe there's a chance that it happens then. But we're a long ways off from then. A lot of things have to happen good and bad before that happens. Are you a law firm partner looking for a better situation for your practice and a blockbuster contract worthy of Juan Soto? If so, you should call Mason Kalfas of Zenith Legal in Washington, D.C. Works with law firms and lawyers on finding the perfect match. No platoons, just superstars. Some lawyers switch firms because of conflict. Some lawyers switch firms for a better platform for their practice. And some lawyers switch firms for more money. You need the Scott Boris of Legal Headhunters working for you, and that's Mason. Mason will work with you to find a better fit for your practice and ultimately the best deal for you and your entire team. Call him today at 202-486-3535 or check out his website, zenithlegal.com. This is an unprecedented time in the legal market and many top firms are looking to expand. Call Mason today. Zenith Legal also works with associates and distinguishes itself on personal service. Zenith Legal doesn't just spam resumes out to law firms. Zenith Legal talks to the right people and gets your resume in front of the decision makers who matter. Whether you are a rainmaker partner or a mid-level associate, give Mason Kalfas at Zenith Legal a call today to accelerate your career. Call today, 202-486-3535. These are bunts. Deekman Fields throws low, right on by Goldschmidt. And Cesar will get to second base. He's going to be waved to third. The throw to third is way over the head of Escobar. And Cesar will be awarded home plate, and the Phillies lead it 2-0. The Little League home run. There it is. So with the Nationals and where they're at, it was impossible to ignore if you're a Nationals fan, a Nationals observer, all of this stuff happening in the weeks leading up to the lockout. And the Nationals just are not coming up with anybody. You know, now we did see him come up, I guess, with Chris Taylor, who ended up resigning with the Dodgers. But otherwise, you know, the Nationals just were not players in any of this. Now, I don't think anyone is like shocked by that, but I think that that is notable. Like when we talk about maybe this rebuild doesn't take as long as it might take. 
that's on the backs of the prospects on the team now and on prospects who may be coming. The Nationals are not going to go bonkers in free agency to try to reload, nor should they. I mean, I think the Nats are playing this the right way, but you know, it was telling like all of the rumors and the tweets and the reports that were out there. You barely saw the Nationals come up with anybody. And that's why I made the joke at the top of the show. Cesar Hernandez, you know, the Mets signed Max Scherzer $43 plus million per year. The Nats gave Cesar Hernandez a one-year contract. That's where the Nats are right now, organizationally. Yeah. And look, I know there were some fans that were hoping maybe there would be a big splash and an indication that they are trying to win again very soon. I never got the sense that that was going to be the case. So I wasn't surprised by it. It was strange because for you know almost a decade now, when it came to free agency as a reporter, almost any big name who was out there, I'd be looking at as potential and, and trying to monitor their situation. And this year, I didn't feel like I needed to do that hardly at all. That's just not the position, like you said, that they're in. And that may be frustrating to some, but I agree. The best case scenario for how this is going to work out is that they patch up a couple of holes this winter. Maybe they get a third baseman, maybe a left fielder, another starting pitcher, some bullpen help, short-term deals for guys who can maybe help them get a little bit better this year, bide some time for younger guys, maybe then flip some of those players at the trade deadline in 2022 to get more prospects. And now when you go into next winter, you're saying, okay, we see a real foundation here that may be closer to winning. And now next winter, you say, okay, we're going to go out and start signing some bigger name guys because these are players who are going to be part of our next championship team, which may be coming in the next couple of years. Right now, even if they wanted to, it's hard to sell somebody on the idea of coming to DC. This is like, go way back when. They tried to sign Mark Teixeira in the winter of either 08 or 09. I don't remember which one of it was, but coming off a 100 loss season. And they were serious. Like they made him a nine-figure offer, something they had never done before. And Teixeira was impressed with him all, but he said, look, I'm going to the Yankees because they're the Yankees and they're going to win. You guys aren't there yet. And well, it was a few more years till they got Jason Worth to come and Worth saw the bubblings of what was happening. And he took a little bit of a chance. Once he did, now the doors were open and everyone thought, okay, the Nationals are a serious contender. For them to go after a big name free agent this winter would be like them going after Teixeira back then. So it's going to be at least a year and free agents are going to need to see evidence of where this is going and see, okay, this is a team that's on the right track again, and they are only a year or two away maybe from contending. Yeah, I think the concern with the Nationals and where they're at, and this is why, personally, it's hard to have a lot of optimism right now with this Juan Soto thing where, you know, at the general manager's meeting, Scott Boris comes out and says, well, Juan wants to see that the Nats are serious about winning or are, you know, contenders again or wants to be with a team that is a contender. He can be a free agent in three years. This may take three years just to get your ducks in a row with all this. You know, when you go through a rebuild, right, you have phase one, which is the acknowledgement of it's time to rebuild. Then you have to go through the process of acquiring prospects. And so you go through sell-offs. And the Nationals, to me, are not even through with the sell-off part of all this. They don't have enough prospects yet to where you can say, okay, guys are on the come. Like Their farm system is still not in very good shape. Their farm system was in horrendous shape. They elevated it to you know very bad shape with the sell-off of last late July. But there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. There's still a lot that needs to be added to the Nationals minor league inventory before you can say, okay, this farm system has a lot of things happening in it. And, you know, this team seems poised to be good again in a few years. So like before you can even entertain the idea of when might the Nats be good again, you got to go through that process of loading up on prospects, stocking up on guys who you think could be good. 
And then you go through the phase of, okay, developing these guys and seeing how they're doing. And oh, by the way, they're not all guaranteed to develop well. And maybe some of those guys end up being bust. So you have to go through all of that. And then once they start getting to double A and triple A and you see the Nationals farm system rankings, you know, skyrocketing up what MLB pipeline and baseball America puts out there, then you can start to get excited. And then you can start to really be a player again in free agency. But there is a process to a rebuild, which I know is a word Mike Rizzo did not want to use with you guys late last season, but that's what this is essentially. And so I think if you're Mike Rizzo, like that's really what you're thinking about right now. How am I going to get more prospects? And so that's why what you said, I think is the way to go. If you're going to sign guys, sign potential people who you can flip. Like that's the way to look at this. But unfortunately, I mean, I'd love to sit here and say the Nats are going to be good again in 2022, 2023. And maybe that happens. I hope that happens. But It's difficult to paint that picture. It's difficult to construct a realistic scenario under which the Nats get good again quickly, just when you think about this logically and you look at other rebuilds across the sport. I agree. I think it's a different story if right now we're saying, oh, they have a top 10 farm system now. Well, they don't. They have like a top 20 or 23 or something like that from down at 2930. So yeah, there is a long way to go in that regard. And let's point out this still isn't just about trading for prospects. It's about drafting better and developing better. You only do this if you start getting your own guys to come through the system. And so this year is a huge year for guys like Jackson Rutledge and Brady House, last year's first round pick, and Cade Cavalli and Cole Henry and whoever they end up drafting in 2021, they're going to have a top 10 pick for the first time in forever. So those are going to go as as much to do with when this team is contending again as what players they get in trades. You have to do it from within. And to this point, we've talked about this, they have not done a good enough job of that in quite some time. So I'm really interested to see 2022, what kind of minor league seasons do some of these prospects have and who can they get in the next draft that maybe could be you know, on a two or three year track for helping them win at the big league level. That's a lot to get done. And it is a slow path. You have to trust the process as other teams and other sports have pointed out. Now, what does that mean for Soto? That may not line up well time-wise for him. But if you're the Nats, you can't really change your approach just to try to win before he's ready to leave. I think it would be a big mistake on their part to try to rush this and to say, well, we have to be ready to win within a couple of years by 2023 because we're trying to convince Soto to stay. If in the end, that actually hinders your long-term ability at success. You're going for a short-term fix over the long-term fix. This was a long time coming, as we've talked about. They need to follow this thing through all the way through. Yeah, because ultimately, as great as Soto is, and he obviously is great, he's one player, and baseball isn't basketball. One player can only do so much. You know, one of the more interesting things to me with the Nationals is if you look at some of the best seasons in Nationals history in terms of war, so many of those individual seasons happened in non-playoff seasons, like Ryan Zimmerman's best seasons were like 08, 09. You know, Bryce Harper's great season, 2015. Juan Soto's just completed 2021 season. These like really good seasons, like MVP caliber seasons. You know, Zimmerman, if you go by war, was an MVP candidate back in some of those uh, dark days for the Nationals franchise. But the point is, these great seasons, but they didn't mean anything in terms of team accomplishment. Why? Because one guy can only do so much. So 100%, you don't want to lose Soto and you should do everything you can to keep Soto, but you shouldn't let the Soto situation govern how you handle the rebuild. Nothing matters more than the Nationals riding the ship in terms of player development, getting back to drafting well and developing well. And you know what? 
if the likes of some of the people you just referenced do develop well and quickly, and Josiah Gray comes along, and Kay Barrett Ruiz comes along, and Lane Thomas proves to be legit, then maybe the Nationals are good again sooner rather than later. You certainly don't dismiss that as a possibility. And the one other, you know, we have to throw this out there because this could change the, the dynamic within the next year or so. If, it's a huge if, if Steven Strasburg comes back healthy, if Patrick Corbin returns to being something resembling a quality major league pitcher, that could absolutely change the timeline because as we've seen with this organization, especially if you have, let's say three dominant starters at the top of your rotation that overcomes a lot of other blemishes and problems on a roster. So in theory, if all that were to happen in the next year and now by 2023, you're saying, Hey, we may be in a position to try to win. That could change the dynamic. But as we've said over and over again, you hope for all that to happen. You cannot count on any of that happening, not given the histories. So I'm glad you brought up Strasburg and Corbin. Big off-seasons for those guys for very different reasons, right? Strasburg coming off thoracic outlet syndrome surgery, Corbin coming off back-to-back really bad seasons. We're in the midst of a lockout. So when it comes to something like Steven Strasburg's rehab and trying to get his arm and shoulder right, when it comes to Corbin trying to fix himself and watch video and work on his mechanics and whatever else, you know, obviously these guys aren't working with the Nationals now. To what extent does the lockout hinder what Steven Strasburg and Patrick Corbin are trying to do this offseason? So my understanding of it, and I haven't seen it like officially confirmed anywhere this is true of this lockout, but I read things that showed language that was in place previously and in some other sports who've gone through this, is that during a lockout, the teams cannot have any contact with players who are on the 40-man roster. So they can't be monitoring their progress. They can't you know, work with them. Coaches can't work with them. Trainers can't work with them, except for those who are rehabbing from injury that was suffered while playing for that team. So in Steven Strasburg's case, I believe, and I'm not 100% sure of this, but I believe he is allowed to use Nationals facilities during the lockout if he's working with medical staff and trainers that he could go to Nats Park to get treatment. He could go to West Palm Beach and get treatment and go through whatever a normal rehab process would be. Again, not 100% positive of that, but that was the indication that I got right before the lockout began. Now, that doesn't mean that Jim Hickey can be on the phone with him every day or be down there in person with him working on his mechanics. That's a different thing. But when it comes to actual physical rehab, they aren't just going to leave the player to his own devices to take care of that. But that is a big part of all this. You're right in that players are on their own essentially until they're allowed to return and work together with the team and talk about bad timing. You really would hope that in the case of Strasburg and Corbin and a lot of Joe Ross as well, that this would be an important offseason to have full access to the coaches and trainers and medical staff and everybody that you would normally have coming back from an injury. Also happening since we did our last episode of the Nats Chat podcast was the deadline for MLB teams to tender contracts to arbitration eligible players. That deadline was on November 30th at 8 p.m. Eastern. And, you know, we talked as last season went on, well, geez, Joe Ross, Eric Fetty, Austin Voth, might one or more of those guys be non-tendered by the Nationals? Well, it turns out all of them were tendered contracts. The Nats did non-tender relievers Wander Suero and Ryan Harper in addition 
to minor league first baseman Mike Ford. I don't think anyone is surprised at the Nats non-tendering Suero. He was a workhorse for the Nats. I, you know, give him credit for that. But he got optioned to AAA Rochester twice last season. You get optioned twice in the midst of a lost season like that in which the bullpen is really bad. I think the writing was on the wall there. Ryan Harper, it's amazing, man. I mean, for a while, this guy was really good for the Nats last season. Bunch of low leverage spots. The leverages started to come up and the performance, unfortunately, for Ryan Harper dipped. But when it comes to Ross, Fetty, and Voth, you know, I guess given the lack of legit pitching options in the organization right now in terms of options that are major league ready, I guess we shouldn't be surprised by this. If the Nats were more of a pitching rich organization, maybe a non-tender one or more of those guys. But given the circumstance, it does make sense that the Nats tendered contracts to those players. Yeah, I think that's the key there is I think the Nats ideally hope they have five starters better than Eric Fetty come opening day 2022, but they don't know that yet. And there's a lot of things they're not going to be able to know between now and then. They have to get to spring training and see who's where and who's healthy. Strasburg, Ross, see where Josiah Gray's at, see where Cade Cavalli's at, and all kinds of other stuff. And so given that, I think they felt like we can't afford to just let go of somebody who we may need, at least going into the season. You know, we're going to cost a couple million dollars, something like that. And maybe that's a little money they could have saved. Is there at this stage people really believing that Eric Fetty is finally going to turn a corner, become something that he hasn't been to date? I think we're kind of running out of time for that to happen. There were hopes. I mean, there, there was a point there early last season where we thought, OK, this might be a new Eric Fetty. It just didn't happen. But I don't think they are in a position to just be able to give away with no compensation, young pitching like that without already knowing they have a better alternative in-house. They just don't have that. In Joe Ross's case, they must feel confident that he's going to be all right. But as we've said all along, with a partial tear, your UCL, you don't really know until you start pitching, not just throwing, but pitching. And that doesn't happen until we get closer to spring training. So it's entirely possible that come February, he starts throwing off a mound, the elbow's still bothering him, and they say, okay, you know what, we're going to have to go through with Tommy John anyways. And That could be unfortunate because you're now paying him several million dollars to miss the season and he gets service time. And if the rules are the same as they are now, he's a free agent a year from now. So it could be a very wasted season there. But again, I don't know they were in a position to say, we're going to get rid of you because we know we have better options. I just don't think they have that right now. Well, in a world with so much uncertainty, I'm glad that we can still count on the annual Mark Zuckerman story on MassInSports.com. Eric Fetty versus Joe Ross versus Austin Voth for the number five spot in the Nationals rotation. All you have to do, dude, is copy and paste your stories from years past and just run that come March or April or whenever the season is beginning for the Nationals this year. But the battle, the three-way dance will be happening again. I'm so happy. Who says I haven't done that? How closely have you read those articles? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. One more item before we call it a show. So Cesar Hernandez, welcome to Washington, D.C. What do you think Mike Rizzo is thinking with Cesar Hernandez? So Cesar Hernandez, if you're a Nats fan, you've heard the name, you've seen the player. He's played with the Philadelphia Phillies. He spent the 2021 season with the Cleveland Indians and the Chicago White Sox. He's going into his age 32 season, primarily a second baseman. Has also played shortstop and even third base. He only got a one-year contract. You know, it may not even be that the Nationals are pegging him as a starter, but you think about the infield mix, right? Alcides Escobar has been re-signed. You have Luis Garcia. You have Carter Keboom. Cesar Hernandez has played some shortstop at even third base. Do you think the Nationals just look at Hernandez as a backup, nothing more? Do you think it's possible he ends up being a starter for the Nationals in 2022? So I actually think this is pretty intriguing, and not to say that he is that big name of a player, 
But there's a lot of different ways this can go, and it can affect several different guys. It's not just about him. Personally, I don't think you give him a $4 million deal to be on your bench. Not in the way the Nationals in 2022 are going to be. Maybe in 2019, you'd have that. He's like an Asdrubal Cabrera. But right now, that's not really where they're at. So I think they sign him to be somewhat of an everyday player. Now, the question is, is he their everyday second baseman? which is a position that he's played the vast majority of his career. He was even a gold glove finalist a couple of years ago, or maybe even won the gold glove. Or do you say, you know what? He's actually really versatile. He can play short. He can play third. He's played some center field. Maybe he's like a Josh Harrison, jack of all trades, who can bounce around and still be in the lineup a lot. And then off of either of those, what is the domino effect on others? Is Luis Garcia your second baseman? Or are they actually saying, you know what? Luis Garcia came up as a shortstop. He's one of our better prospects. We're a rebuilding team. Let's give him a shot at short. Let's see how he does there. Now, the little bit that we've seen of him, I think he's been better at second than at short. And even at second, there are some concerns in the field about lapses in concentration and some sloppy errors. So are you really ready to do that? Maybe now's the time to try. What does that mean for Escobar? They re-signed him for $1 million, so that's a lesser contract. Maybe that is a bench role or utility role. Or... Maybe he, who has played some third base in his time, could move over there. And now Carter Keboom has a challenge. There's a lot of moving parts here. and This could go several different ways. Now, unfortunately, the timing of the signing and the lockout happening meant that we didn't get to talk to Mike Rizzo. He's not allowed to talk about any of these players to really get his thoughts on any of this. So we don't truly know. And there could be more moves coming that we haven't seen yet and obviously will be coming later on. But I think it's interesting because as I just outlined, you could look at this a couple different ways, and the end result could be one of several different things that affects three or four different players. Yeah, Cesar Hernandez did hit 21 home runs in the 2021 season, although he slugged just 386. He had an on-base of just 308, and he did win a gold glove, albeit for the shortened 2020 season, 503 and two-thirds innings at second base that year, plus six defensive runs saved when the Gold Glove Award for American League second baseman. You tell us what you think. You can hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. Appreciate all the feedback that we continue to get, even as we're in the midst of the offseason and in the midst of a lockout. We got this email from James Bailey. I was a fan of baseball during the last lockout. Uh, It was a strike, but we get the idea. And swore I would never follow the game again. I believe that this lockout will severely hurt the game. I can't believe the two sides can't get together. Let us hope that they do get together. But unfortunately, MLB hears people like James say, I will never watch baseball again. And MLB says to itself, oh, yes, you will. MLB thinks we're all suckers. And in a lot of ways, we are all suckers because we'll complain and we'll say we don't like this. We don't like that. But we all keep coming back. And there's a reason that baseball has become the $10 billion per year business that it has become. So they've got us and they probably won't be losing us regardless of what we say. As long as they don't lose too many games. If this really does go into April, I could see there being some legitimate fallout from that. But if they sign a deal in February, spring training starts, season starts on time, I think it'll all be brushed aside by most. Like we said earlier, I don't think fans care what the end result of this is as long as there's a season and it doesn't impact the 162. Yeah, have yourself a season and address the core issues confronting the sport, please. Let's make baseball as great as it can be. Uh, you can get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to natschatpodcast.square.site. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast.
Here's the set, the pitch, fastball, swing and a miss! Swing and a miss, he struck him out, and a curly W is in the books. It's the first Major League save for Kyle Finnegan, and it could be the last victory in a Nationals uniform for Max Scherzer, his 92nd in a Nationals uniform of his 183 career wins. And for Max Scherzer, it'll be his eighth win of this year. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.